Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We all better start learning how to say Omicron. The lead starts right now. With Americans on edge, President Biden trying to calm fears as a new coronavirus variant spreads throughout the world. What might that mean for you and your family? Plus, another Trump loyalist in the sights of the January 6th Select Committee are new criminal contempt charges on the way. And parents behaving badly, screaming, name-calling, fist fights at school board meetings, some getting so bad, some parents are now attacking a board member's child. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and President Biden scrambling to combat the two major crises facing the American people. This afternoon, Mr. Biden hosting a group of CEOs at the White House to discuss ways to make sure shelves are fully stocked and prices are reasonable as holiday shopping ramps up. Earlier today, the president addressing the new coronavirus variant, now named Omicron, saying this new strain first detected in South Africa is, quote, cause for concern, not a cause for panic, and promising new lockdowns are off the table, at least for now. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden is now planning to address both of these issues again in a few days, including laying out a new plan for the U.S. to fight the coronavirus pandemic as we head into winter. This variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. President Biden reassuring the nation after a new coronavirus variant set off global alarms. I'm sparing no effort and removing all roadblocks to keep the American people safe. Biden restricting travel from South Africa and seven neighboring nations, which he warned will slow the spread of Omicron, but won't stop it. Here's what it does. It gives us time. It gives us time to take more actions. To move quicker. The leaders of African nations calling it an overreaction. Firstly, it's outrageous that, you know, South Africa and Southern Africa is being punished for having good surveillance. The Omicron variant has not yet been detected in the United States, but officials say it's only a matter of time. Sooner or later, we're going to see cases of this new variant here in the United States. As scientists race to determine whether concern over the variant is justified, Biden is calling on Americans to remain vigilant. Most Americans are fully vaccinated, but not yet boosted. If you're 18 years or over and got fully vaccinated before June the 1st, go get the booster shot today. Top White House officials are in talks with vaccine manufacturers Moderna and Pfizer on contingency plans should Omicron-specific boosters become necessary. We do not yet believe that additional measures will be needed. Biden is receiving daily briefings from his COVID-19 team and on Thursday will lay out his plan for this winter, which he currently says doesn't include more restrictions. Are lockdowns off the table? Yes, for now. Why is that? Well, because we're able to, if people are vaccinated and wear their masks, there's no need for the lockdown. With the threat of a new variant looming over the holidays, Biden hosted the CEOs of major retailers at the White House today to discuss tackling supply chain gridlock. Know how incredibly busy you all are, 
an heck of a job you're doing to make sure people aren't disappointed this past Thanksgiving. Now, Jake, of course, we should note that they still say this variant has not yet been detected in the United States. The White House says that the government will let us know once they have detected it here, given they've largely said it's inevitable that it will be here at some point. And Dr. Fauci has said that, yes, PCR tests can detect this variant. And, of course, the CDC right now is working with state labs to try to figure out if it's already here, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins with the White House, thanks so much. Let's discuss all this, all this with CNN. Senior political commentator David Axelrod, the associate editor of the Financial Times, Rana Faruhar, as well as CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. David, let me start with you. So the supply chain crisis, Biden is meeting with business leaders right now. It's been going on for months. Americans are still paying higher prices on everything from groceries to gasoline. So we see the president meeting with CEOs. He gives speeches almost daily about the problem. Is he doing enough, however, to tackle this? Yeah, well, I mean, the question is, how much can you do? What can you do? This is also, Jake, related to the virus. There have been all kinds of distortions in supply chains uh, as a result of, uh, of the virus. So as much as anything, you have the bully pulpit uh, to try and exhort uh, leaders of industry uh, and others to take extraordinary measures to, uh, to deal with the supply chain. But they have economic incentives to do that as well. So, uh, look, I think a lot of what today was about was showing that he is responsive to uh, the crises that he's facing, uh, even if he doesn't have great answers right now to the crises that we're facing. We learned in the Obama administration uh, that uh, you can be doing a lot of things behind the scenes, but if people don't see you doing things Mm -hmm. uh, or at least talking about things, uh, then they don't know that you're doing them. And I think that's why he was out there so visibly today. And Rana, how effective is it for the president to convene these meetings with CEOs? And even if they are able to make major changes, how soon would Americans see actual improvements on fuller shelves, lower prices? Look, I think it's an important message for the president to get out and show the American public that the public and private sector are working together. But there's only so much that the president can do. And what he can do tends to be a little bit slow moving. That's just the nature of building out infrastructure, increasing port capacity. These things take time. That's that's a that's a two month process, really, before you start to see much. Um, in the way of results. But already the biggest companies, your Walmarts, Costco's, Targets, are actually moving forward using technology to speed up supply chains. I don't think you're going to see a cancel Christmas, um, but I do think that you're going to see big companies doing better than small ones. And that's something that kind of plays to existing trends of a winner-take-all economy. And that's something that, you know, I'm sure that the president's thinking about and you're going to hear more about later on. Right. That's why he did a small business stop for some Christmas shopping a few days ago. Sanjay, earlier today, uh, Biden spoke about the other major crisis on everyone's mind, the Omicron variant. Uh, Many of us just learned about this strain within the last few days. It's already been labeled a variant of concern. What do we really know about it? Well, this is uh, this is very recent and and the information sort of unfolding pretty quickly. What we know is that the first specimen that was actually confirmed was taken on November 9th. That gives you an idea of just how quickly this is unfolding. That was in uh, Botswana in South Africa. And now there's some 15 countries plus countries around the world, including Australia, Canada, the UK, where it's been detected. It has not been detected in the United States yet. This last line, it has at least 50 mutations. And this is what scientists are paying a lot of attention to because some of the mutations here, and we can show you uh, a 3D representation of what this looks like, but some of these mutations are mutations that these scientists have seen before. And when they see them, some of them have been associated with making the virus more transmissible. 
you're looking at the spike protein right now and the new mutations on it. Uh, some of these mutations have been seen with making the, the virus less susceptible or amenable to protection from vaccines. The question is, when you put them all together, does it, does it, do they add up or does it turn into something else entirely? That's what they don't know right now. So big question still, is it more transmissible? It certainly appears to be. Does it cause more severe disease? We don't know the answer to that yet. How well will vaccines work? That will take a few weeks, two to three weeks, probably before we know the answer to that question. And then also this last line, Jake, if you've been infected before, you have an infection acquired immunity, how protective is that? Um, there may be some evidence from South Africa that it's not as protective. So that's something that they're going to pay attention to. Right. All questions, not answers at this point, really. That's right. uh, David, critics accuse the Biden White House of being caught flat footed by the Delta variant, given how fast it spread across the U.S. How much of this do you think is being driven by the desire to not to have a, a, a repeat criticism? And, and talk a little bit, if you would, about that line that White Houses uh, of whoever party have to walk when it comes to not wanting to panic people while also wanting to be transparent and inform them. Yeah, no, look, I think it's really important. There was a real function here because as Sanjay just said, we don't really know what this is, what the threat is right now. Uh, We saw the markets react very badly when news of this variant came up. Uh, And I I do think there was a role for the president to play in calming uh, people. But there also is a political imperative for him to look like he is on top of it and doing everything that he possibly can. And I think that's a lot of what motivated the timing uh, of his remarks today. After all, he's going to be speaking again on Thursday. So uh, I think they felt uh, an urgent need to address this, both for uh, purposes of calming people and giving people a sense that he was on top of it. And if you look at some of the language he used about how he's throwing everything at it and they'll leave no stone unturned and so on, uh, that was clearly a motivation. At Rana, the stock market bounced back today after having the worst day of the year Friday. Should we expect the market to be volatile given how little we know about this new variant and the possibility of, of other variants as the winter weather comes? Yeah, for sure. You know, as Sanjay was saying, as we learn more, you're going to see the market react. If this is highly transmissible, if you find out that the vaccines are not going to be as effective, then the market is going to go down, no question. But volatility um, is going to be the watchword. In a funny way, you're seeing a little mini version of what you saw when we first um, had the pandemic, where the markets tank, but then tech stocks come back up because, hey, everybody's going to be working from home longer, you know. And you have to remember that we did see some of the biggest highs even during uh, the pandemic in the markets. So, um, you know, it, it's not all doom and gloom. Sanjay, President Biden said that new lockdowns to stop the virus from spreading are, are off the table, at least for now, he said. Is there a point where you think the White House might have to reconsider that? Or do you agree with his general, general proposition that as long as we have vaccinations and masks, we should be OK? Yeah, realistically speaking, I I think that, uh, you know, I I don't know how that could how that would be implemented again uh, to to the point where they'd be effective. These lockdowns masking is something we don't talk about as much. We talk a lot about the vaccines. But, you know, the thing about the variants, no matter what it is, if you have a highly effective mask, a high filtration mask, that'll be very effective. And, you know, there's been obviously a lot of back and forth on masks. But going into the cooler, drier weather, knowing that there's a, a variant out there that is potentially more uh, transmissible. We're, we're going to learn the answer to that. Um, besides vaccines and boosters, and I think there's a stronger case for boosters, 
I think masks, you know, and the physical distancing without the need to shut down can be very effective until we get a hold of what's really going on here. All right, Sanjay, stick around. David, Rana, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the travel ban pushback. How some major airlines are handling the flight restrictions due to the new coronavirus variant. Plus, she's accused of recruiting underage girls for her billionaire boyfriend, a convicted sex offender. We're in the courtroom for the trial of Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend. Stay with us. In our Health Lead today, at least 50 countries, including the United States, have now imposed new travel restrictions in response to the new coronavirus variant Omicron. The closed borders and blocked flights came just a matter of days after the World Health Organization designated Omicron a variant of concern. CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine is live for us at Reagan National Airport just outside D.C. Pete, some major airlines have had concerns about these restrictions. Well, the good news for them, Jake, is that President Biden says he does not anticipate new travel restrictions, at least for now. But we have seen statement after statement from the travel industry calling these new restrictions, restricting travel from seven countries and South Africa coming into the United States, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. One of these biggest statements from the U.S. Travel Association, it's one of the largest groups representing the travel and tourism industry at large, it says that the administration should respectfully reconsider these restrictions, and it points to rules that just went into effect only three weeks ago, allowing foreign nationals to travel into the United States so long as they prove they are fully vaccinated and they show proof of a negative coronavirus test. The U.S. Travel Association says that is the best way to ensure safe travel. Essentially, that change in rule ended a 600-day ban on travel of foreign nationals into the United States, a big sign of life for international travel and travel at large when the numbers are just going up and up. The TSA screened 2.45 million people at airports across the country just yesterday. That's the highest number we have seen since the start of the pandemic, about 89% of the way from where we were back in 2019 on the same day before the pandemic. And experts believe that number is actually being pushed up because of that resumption of international travel, Jake. All right, Piemontine, thanks so much. Let's bring back CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the U.S. is restricting travel from South Africa, seven other nations, but U.S. citizens are exempt from those restrictions. Uh, So a South African can't come to the United States, but an American in South Africa can come from South Africa to the United States. The virus doesn't care who's a citizen and who's not a citizen. So do these restrictions actually stop the spread? I, I, they're not going to make a huge impact, Jake. I mean, this is a risk-reward proposition. Um, the, the benefit potentially of doing this is you may slow down some of the, uh, the uh, entry of the virus into the country, but it's very porous, as, as you're mentioning, because a lot of people who are citizens will be coming back as well, and they could potentially be carrying the virus. Uh, but, but if there's not really any of the variant detected here right now, uh, the impact will be greater because you're creating more of an impact on slowing down the entry. But overall, I think it's hard to make the case that the travel ban will have much of an impact long term. It is quite likely over the next day or so we're going to hear that this uh, variant has been detected in the United States, and that should surprise nobody. If you go back and look at last year, there were lessons, Jake. I believe the uh, the ban on European travel was March, Mar- middle of March sometime of 2020, March 13th, I believe. But by March 18th, there were significant clusters all over the country. So, you know, the, 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 the virus is likely already here, likely already spreading. We just haven't detected it yet. Yeah, I remember when there was that revelation that a, a, some poor senior in a, in a rest home in Kansas or Missouri had died of it. This was just a week, a couple of weeks after, and it was just clear this virus is everywhere, whether or not we want it to be. Was it, was it 
Um, we just learned the CDC is now going to strengthen its recommendations for boosters, saying all adults should get boosted six months after their second dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or two months after getting the Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine. How significant is this as we wait to hear how severe cases may be because of the new variant? This is the clearest language that we've had, and there's been a lot of back and forth. So the, the change now is they, they were saying that people over the age of 50 should get a booster. People under the age of 50 uh, could or may get a booster, they said before. Now they're saying all adults should get a booster. And I think that that's, that's an important message because I think the thing that we think about with vaccine escape immunity, and this idea that the variant is somehow escaping the immunity of the vaccine, it's, it's more like you have a cushion effect. So right now, there's a significant cushion effect of these vaccines against the circulating virus. With this new one, there may be less of a cushion, so less of a sort of a buffer effect there. If you have a booster, you're going to increase the buffer, if that makes sense. You got, you got more of a cushion. And I think that the, when we're dealing with something that is unknown, uh, we're still trying to figure out how transmissible, how, how severe the disease this Omicron will, will cause, having more of a buffer, more of a cushion, is helpful. Uh, so that, and I think that's where that recommendation is coming from. Sanjay, uh, Omicron has now become the dominant variant in South Africa, less than two weeks since it was first detected. Uh, one doctor treating patients in South Africa said cases have been mild uh, for those right. infected with the Omicron variant. Does that give you less concern, less worry? I, I hope that remains true. I mean, you know, there is uh, a lot of epidemiologists talk about this, this, uh, this pull and push of as a virus becomes more transmissible, it may be becoming less lethal, causing less severe illness at the same time, that somehow these things may trade off. It's not a guarantee, but that is a possibility here, that as it becomes more transmissible, it causes less severe disease. But one thing I want to show you, if we have these numbers, so far what we've heard from South Africa is that most of the patients have also been young, and if they're young, they're, they're likely to have more mild disease as it is. But we can look at what happens when a virus becomes 50% more contagious versus 50% more lethal. I guess we don't have those numbers. But basically, if you start to get a very contagious virus going into an unvaccinated population, especially of people who are vulnerable because of age or pre-existing disease, it could be a real problem, a bigger problem than if the virus just becomes more lethal. That's why vaccines and now boosters are so, so critical. Uh, a contagious virus can be a real problem, uh, obviously, in people who don't have immunity. Yeah, I just got my booster. It was no big deal. Uh, it was right. only the end of October when the Biden administration announced a $70 million investment to make more of those at-home COVID testing kits. Can those COVID testing kits detect this variant? The, 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 um, the antigen tests cannot. Those are really uh, not going to be able to detect the variant. But the PCR tests uh, that are, some are done at home now, they can. Uh, they can at least detect that there's a signal that this is likely the variant. It would still need to be confirmed. So uh, a lot of that, those are out there. There, frankly, should be more of them out there still. This has been a constant uh, topic of discussion between you and I, Jake, that we still have not had enough testing uh, out there. People should be able to test, you know, every day, every week, whatever, within their own homes. And that's still not happening enough. But yes, the answer to your question, it could at least give you a signal that you are dealing with the possible variant. It would then need to be confirmed. So Dr. Fauci said it's going to take about two weeks to know more about the Omicron variant. What indicator are you going to be watching to see if it's spreading here in the U.S., mostly hospitalizations? I think that's the, the, the truest measure. After two years of sort of reporting on this, you know, cases, uh, they're going to be more variable. Uh, people can develop breakthrough cases. We know people who have been vaccinated. 
I think the real question is, are those people getting sick and are they getting sick enough to be in the hospital? I can tell you, Jake, I was spending some time last night looking at the, uh, the uh, South African um, health ministry reports, and they do see that in Guatang province, Johannesburg is, is, is in that province, they have seen an increase in hospitalizations over the last three weeks. It's sort of their late spring there right now. They're coming uh, out of flu season. So are those increased hospitalizations due to this or due to something else? Again, we don't know, but it's that same granularity of data that people should be looking at here in the United States. Are we seeing evidence that the virus is spreading and it's making people severely ill? All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Breaking this afternoon, the Trump ally who's looking at criminal contempt of Congress charges just like Steve Bannon. Who is it? Stay with us. In our politics lead, the committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection is going to pursue criminal contempt charges for another subpoena-defying Trump official. This time it's former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. You might remember Clark. He rose into Trump's good graces by pushing false election fraud claims and trying to weaponize the Justice Department to help Trump undermine the 2020 election. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now. Ryan, Clark did actually appear for an interview with the committee, unlike Steve Bannon, So why is the committee moving forward with this vote to hold him in criminal contempt of Congress? Well, Jake, it's what happened behind those closed doors when Clark appeared for that deposition. He basically didn't answer any questions. He told the committee that he didn't have to, citing both executive privilege and attorney-client privilege because of his relationship with the former President Donald Trump. But the committee just isn't buying it. They believe uh, that Clark has no privilege protections and that he needs to answer their questions and provide the documents that they are looking for. That's why they are taking this step of referring him for criminal contempt to the Department of Justice. Now, this will play out pretty quickly. The committee is set to meet on Wednesday. They will uh, vote out a resolution from that committee. It will then be voted on on the entire House floor. That could happen by the end of the week. It will then be up to the Department of Justice to decide whether or not to prosecute. Uh, Unlike the situation we had with Steve Bannon, we now have some precedent to lean on because the Bannon process is making its way through the courts. So the Department of Justice will have to deal with this. A bit different of a situation than that of Steve Bannon, but it is likely uh, that Jeffrey Clark could be facing prosecution of criminal contempt of Congress, Jake. And and Ryan, we're also hearing that Trump's former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, could, could be next in terms of a vote on criminal contempt of Congress charges. How soon would that be? Yeah, so there's a lot up in the air as it relates to Mark Meadows. The committee has been threatening a possible criminal contempt referral of Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, for some time. But they've also acknowledged that the situation with Meadows is much different than it is for, with than Bannon, also different than the situation with Clark in the fact that he was working in the executive branch at the time in question. Uh, still, they have been very strict with Meadows, saying that they want this information regardless of what privilege claims he thinks he has. They say that they're prepared to move forward with some sort of action against Meadows this week. They aren't clear exactly what that is going to be. It does not seem at this point that it's going to be a criminal contempt referral, but they're leaving that option on the table. Jake, we're hoping to get some clarity as it relates to Meadows later this week. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. She's accused of recruiting underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. And now that she's on trial, will we finally learn more about Epstein's associates then? Dr. Anthony Fauci will join us live to answer your questions about the new Omicron variant, including when we will know more. Stay with us. A 
couple of significant court cases in our national lead today. Jury selection is underway right now in the trial of actor Jussie Smollett. The former Empire star is charged with six counts related to making false reports to authorities that he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack in 2019. Police say that the incident was actually a hoax, and they accuse Smollett of paying two men to stage the event. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now live from outside the courthouse in Chicago. And Omar, you've been in the courtroom today. What's happening inside there? Yeah, Jake. So the jury selection process is well underway. We've got six jurors seated so far uh, uh, and about the over 30 that have faced questions from the judge up to this point. The judge is the only one doing the questioning of these jurors. And he's been asking things like, have you heard of this case, which some prospective jurors have said they haven't. He's also asked if they have seen the show Empire, of course, the show that Jesse Smollett used to be a star of. Some have answered yes, others no. And he's also asked whether they've been a part of any civil rights organization. So that process is ongoing. But of course, this goes all the way back to January 2019. That's where things began when Jesse Smollett told police he was attacked by two men in downtown Chicago, that they hurled racial and homophobic slurs at him as a black and gay man, that they poured a chemical substance on him that they put a noose around his neck so chicago police investigated and they said it was a hoax so charges were filed those charges were then dropped a special prosecutor was appointed to investigate why those charges were dropped and then a grand jury found that six new disorderly conduct charges would be put against jesse smollett and that is why we are here right now so it has been a years-long process to get to this point and justice smollett is in court seated alongside a number of defense attorneys as we've seen throughout the day jake omar how, how long is this trial expected to last Well, in short, the judge wants it to be speedy. He said he's wanted it to last no more than four to five days this morning. He said potentially as late as the beginning of next week. And as I mentioned, we're already six through the jury selection process on this day one. He has said he wants to get into evidence today after a jury is selected. And he also has advised the attorneys and others sitting in the courtroom that these proceedings could spill into the evening, potentially as late as 7 p.m. local time here as well. So it does appear that Judge Lynn, Judge James Lynn here, knows the extent to which things have gone through to get to this point, years in the making, and wants to try and get through this in a matter of days, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you. Another highly anticipated trial, this one involving the alleged accomplice of accused sex trafficker and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Ghislaine Maxwell, a longtime companion of Epstein, is charged with recruiting and grooming underage victims as young as 14 years old for Epstein to sexually exploit. She faces six counts and up to 70 years in prison if convicted of all charges. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us live now with more on this trial. And Bryn, opening statements began today. What's happening in court? Yeah, Jake, actually, the first witness for the government is on the stand, a former pilot of Jeffrey Epstein. And that is after we heard the opening statements from both the government and the defense. In this case, the government taking about 35 minutes to lay out its case in front of these jurors in this federal uh, trial, essentially saying that Ghislaine Maxwell knew very well what was going on behind closed doors in Jeffrey Epstein's multiple homes. That, in fact, she was the lady of the house is what the government uh, was calling her, saying that she recruited these underage 
teenage woman for Jeffrey Epstein to multiple locations where he lived, even took part in the massages that were sort of a cover of this abuse. So lots of details there about sort of the conspiracy that they are alleging that Ghislaine Maxwell was all a part of. For the defense's part, they spent about an hour or so talking to jurors, essentially saying that she's taking the fall for the crimes that Jeffrey Epstein committed. So that is one of the first defenses that uh, they're going with, also saying that this trial is all about memory, manipulation, and money, basically saying there that uh, they believe that some of these victims who will take the stand don't exactly remember the facts as clearly as they should. This trial expected to last about six weeks, Jake. But what do we know about some of the witnesses prosecutors are expected to call? I mean, that defense argument isn't completely off base. There are a lot of men, deviants, predators, pedophiles who have not been charged with anything. Yeah, that's right. We're supposed to hear from four of these alleged accusers who are going to detail how they met up with Ghislaine Maxwell, what was their interactions with them, what they did when they spent time with her. And then also, of course, I'm sure we'll learn about what did happen behind those closed doors in all those houses uh, with Jeffrey Epstein. And yeah, the defense is trying to say that she, Ghislaine Maxwell, was a victim herself. So we'll be hearing on right now the prosecution from these women, but also their family members, how it affected them, these years of alleged abuse, and also members of the staff who the government says knew very well what was going on and were told to be quiet about it. Look away. Don't say anything. Don't talk about it, according to uh, Ghislaine Maxwell giving these instructions. So, again, we are expected to hear a lot not only about Ghislaine Maxwell's involvement, but more about these alleged occurrences that were happening behind closed doors at the hand of Jeffrey Epstein as well. Yeah. Brynjian Grass, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, usually politicians' kids are considered off limits, but up next, how one local meeting of a school board got so ugly parents began attacking the chair's eight-year-old child. Stay with us. In our national league, throwing punches, name-calling, screaming matches, more and more angry parents have taken aim at school board members across the country, usually over mask mandates. As CNN's Evan McMorris-Santoro reports, the debate got so ugly in one town, parents even began targeting the child of the board chairwoman. I took him in the car. and we Kelsey and Chris Waits and their kids, Abby and Kit, live in their dream house in Hastings, Minnesota. Another pancake? Okay. For a few more weeks, anyway. Order up. Get, ooh, look at the steam on that one. When I left the Navy, when I left active duty, I had a job opportunity here and I flew out. Kelsey said, well, I hope the interview went well because we're moving here. This town is great. This town is perfect. This is what I want. How do you feel about Hastings now? I can't unsee the things that have been sent to me. I think with time, I will find forgiveness. Kelsey is one of those school board incumbents defeated this year by parents angry over mask rules. Masks should be a parent's decision and diversity and inclusion programs. This community was very split. She voted for masking. She supported diversity and inclusion programs. Choices that energized parents in a Facebook group opposed to pandemic restrictions. The group was formed in July under the name Conservative Parents of Hastings. A few weeks later, the name was changed to Concerned Parents of Hastings. It's a small town. She knows a lot of the parents in this group. I'm fine with that. That's that's politics. One day, a parent wrote a long post complaining about Kelsey and masking. In the replies, things got ugly. 
someone responded to that post by saying, Kelsey needs to be in jail because her youngest daughter is a boy. A parent outed Kit because of Kit's mom's politics. This was my most precious secret. The thing I I protected most and the thing I was most afraid of ever being used in a political way. I dropped to the floor and I cried. Other parents soon piled on. One attacked the Waitses, calling them woke parents. Another wrote, my heart breaks for any child who has parents that push the shit on them. One moderator of the group hid some of the ugly posts. But another moderator posted more. It kept going. It's just a kid trying to impress their woke parents. And I'm like, my God, I voted for Bush every time he was on the ballot. My wokeness, if you want to say that my understanding of what it is to be transgender makes me woke, it's because Kit woke me up. Kit taught me, not the other way around. Kit is eight years old, uses the pronouns they, them. The weights is asked we not show their face on camera. I like that your socks never match. You, you got style, kid. For Kit's fourth birthday, Kit asked for one thing. They really, really, really wanted the Kit Kittredge American Girl doll. And I was standing right there in the kitchen, and Kit walks up to me and goes, Mom, can you call me Kit? And I said, sure, still my little boy. And Kit goes, no, you're a little girl. And I was like, absolutely, sweetie, you got it. And then I ran into the other room with a panic attack and called Daddy in Japan and said, what the heck just happened? It was a journey for these parents. I remember a conversation I had with a family member that said, you know, have you ever just considered doing more manly things with Kit and less nurturey things. And at at that moment, it was kind of a, well, wait a minute. What am I trying to do here? And what what is really, what's wrong with this? The waitress decided the right course was love your kid. They let Kit be Kit. We lost our, our friends when Kit first came out, and we lost family. The family kept all of this a secret from most people for a simple reason, safety. You out a kid before they're ready, you're subjecting them to that sort of behavior that's going to increase their risk of suicide. This is not about my parenting practices. This is about the lives of kids. After Kit was outed online, Kelsey realized the family might not be safe. She wrote a letter to the local newspaper. She appealed to decency. I basically said, there's still a line Don't cross the line. And then I continued my letter saying, here are the great things. Here's how we come together as a community. On Facebook, some parents responded with glee. We made the paper, one parent wrote. They are proud of what they did. CNN reached out to parents in the group. We reached out to the moderators. No one responded. But concerned parents of Hastings blocked us. She knows these parents. She sees them in the grocery store. They know each other. And yet, when it came to a political debate, they chose to out her child. How do you see that happening? Where does that come from? What's going on? I think 
there's been a behavior like that that's been modeled by a lot of politicians in the United States over the past several years. I think normal people who are looking at these small issues at their school board and their local elections say, well, there's not a consequence for those people. And I'm just a small fry, so there's not going to be a consequence for me. This family is not sticking around this neighborhood to find out what comes next. They're moving. That's where we're at right now, that there are people that we know that are not safe for our kids in our neighborhood and that we can't trust our kids alone at the bus stop waiting for the bus. Not because of the kids necessarily, but because of the parents. Evan McMorris-Santoro, CNN, Hastings, Minnesota. And our thanks to Evan McMorris-Santoro for that piece. Coming up, will there be new lockdowns? Will the vaccines work? Can we travel? Dr. Anthony Fauci will join us live on the new Omicron variant. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lead MJ Tapper. This hour, former Trump Defense Secretary Mark Esper will join us live for his first interview since suing the Pentagon over censoring his upcoming book, saying that the Defense Department under Biden is blocking parts about Donald Trump. Plus, the United States of Addiction, a special look at how the cheap and powerful drug fentanyl is driving the record number of overdose deaths in the U.S. And leading this hour, President Biden today attempting to reassure the nation with the world on edge as a new coronavirus variant emerges. Omicron has been named a variant of concern by the World Health Organization because of how quickly it seems to be spreading, though we still do not know if Omicron causes more severe illness or if it evades vaccines. In the U.S., federal health officials are bracing for the first official Omicron cases in the U.S., though they say there are likely far more infections across the globe than currently reported. In just moments, Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to join us live to answer all of our questions on this new variant. But first, as CNN's Amara Walker reports, the rush to get ahead of this new variant already is happening in the United States before experts know for sure if it's here or how widespread or how severe. Omicron is a stark reminder this pandemic is not yet over. It's just got more of things that we don't like the look of. But we don't have enough information about whether it's more transmissible, whether it's going to cause more severe disease, and critically, is it able to escape the effects of the immune of the vaccine? While it'll take weeks to have any definitive answers, South Africa, the country that identified the variant, is offering clues. This new variant, Omicron, has mutations that are common to the other four previous variants of concern. So it has mutations that are similar to the Delta variant, so we're expecting it to transmit faster. And based on the early evidence we're seeing in South Africa, it's certainly transmitting faster than the Delta variant. Already confirmed in at least 15 countries, it is clear Omicron is making its way across borders. We're going to see cases of this new variant here in the United States. Trying to slow the spread, the U.S., along with almost 50 other countries who've put travel restrictions on countries in southern Africa, are sparking criticism. It's outrageous that, you know, South Africa and southern Africa is being punished for having good surveillance and, you know, ensuring that we wanted to be completely transparent and to share this data with the rest of the world as soon as we knew it and confirmed it. These restrictions have already left travelers in limbo. We've probably, what, Riley had about 10 flights booked that we were either canceled or that we were not allowed to board. But today, President Joe Biden tried to assure the American people that these are precautionary measures. 
This variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. And he, along with other top health officials, continue to echo one main message, get vaccinated. Please, folks, if you've been on the fence, I'm not a politician, I'm a scientist. Maybe we could even ask all the politicians to agree on this one. Get your vaccine, get your booster. It's the best chance we've got to drive this COVID-19 pandemic away. And again, Jake, as uh, we've been saying, there's still a lot we don't know about this new coronavirus, Omicron, including whether or not it evades vaccines. In fact, if it indeed does, Pfizer and BioNTech saying that it is prepared to adapt its vaccines within six weeks. Johnson & Johnson also saying it is pursuing an Omicron-specific vaccine as well. But as you heard from President Biden and public health officials, your best protection is getting vaccinated. In fact, the CDC just a moment ago strengthening its recommendation for boosters, saying anyone over the age of 18 should get boosted six months after their second dose. Jake. All right, Emma Walker, thank you so much. Let's bring in President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, good to see you. You've spoken multiple times with your counterparts in South Africa, where Omicron has become the dominant variant in just two weeks. What are they telling you about the spread and perhaps more importantly, the severity of cases there? Well, with the latter, Jake, they don't know. And we are really in virtual constant contact with them. They have a number of patients that they're following in their medical facilities. And they assured us that they would know probably in a matter of a week, a week and a half as to whether or not we're dealing with something that for the most part is more severe, equally as severe or less severe. It could be either of them. Right now, it does not look like there's a big signal of a high degree of severity, but it's too early to tell, Jake. We really need to wait for them to give us the information. They have been extremely cooperative and collaborative and transparent with us about what's going on there. Very helpful. President Biden said today that he does not anticipate expanding U.S. travel restrictions, even though almost 20 countries now have confirmed cases of the new Omicron variant. Given what we've seen with this virus, do you expect more travel restrictions if Omicron is proven to be more contagious and more deadly? I don't think so, Jake. I think what was done about the restrictions from South Africa and neighboring countries was merely because when the information came out about the molecular makeup of this virus with all of the mutations that were of concern, we felt we needed to do something right away. Hopefully those restrictions are not going to be a very long duration until we get a handle as to what's going on. But we do not anticipate any further restrictions. South Africa's president called these new travel restrictions unjustified. The man considered the Fauci of South Africa uh, said this today on CNN. Take a listen. Well, firstly, it's outrageous that you know, South Africa and Southern Africa is being punished for having good surveillance and, you know, ensuring that we wanted to be completely transparent. So this kind of early knee-jerk reaction to block travel is probably just going to slow the seeding slightly at best, but will probably have little, if any, impact. Do you disagree with what he just said? I mean, he's saying it's probably not going to have much of an impact. Yeah. It's not going to have an impact in the big picture of whether it gets here or not. But what impact it will have, Jake, it will buy us maybe a couple of weeks of getting better prepared. You know, whenever you do something like give travel restrictions, you don't do it just for no reason. You do it to allow you to get a leeway, a little bit period of time of maybe a week or two to intensify your preparedness 
and to understand what's going on better. And that's the reason why the president said at the press conference today, now's the time to say, what can we do about this? The unvaccinated need to get vaccinated and those who are eligible to get boosted should get boosted. Because we know from experience, Jake, that even with variants that are not specifically directed at by the vaccine, such as the Delta variant, if you get the level of antibody high enough, the protection spills over to those other variants. So we have every reason to believe, even though this is an extraordinary, unusual variant because of the number of mutations, there's no reason to believe that it will not happen, that if you get the level of antibody high with the regular booster to the regular vaccine, that you're going to have at least some effect and hopefully a good effect on our ability to protect against this variant. You said that PCR tests, coronavirus tests, should detect cases of this new COVID variant. But what about those who instead use those popular at-home rapid tests? Could Omicron be much more widespread than the ability to track it because those tests don't work on Omicron? You know, it's interesting. I I asked that question uh, just yesterday because I was on a prolonged Zoom call with our African, (laughs) South African colleagues, and they said at least some of the rapid antigen tests would pick this up. He couldn't guarantee that all of them would, but the ones that they were using, he didn't specifically say what they were, is that the mutations did not interfere with the ability to recognize the antigen by the antibodies that were used in the rapid test. So that is a good thing. The PCR tests that are used can pick it up. Lucky for us that that's the case. Do you expect that the Omicron variant will become the dominant variant in the United States at some point? Jake, we just can't predict that. We don't know. And that's the reason why we are looking now at what the pattern is in South Africa. You know, it's unfortunate that South Africa has been sort of the epicenter of at least the recognition of it. But the good news is they are as good as it gets when it comes to scientists and public health people. So they'll be able to give us some very important information, hopefully within the next week or two. Today, New York City made masks highly recommended. We're now in the thick of holiday gatherings, people spending more time indoors because of the cold weather. Would you urge cities and states to reinstate mask mandates and social distancing measures? And what do you say to those people? And I've seen you know, Republican members of Congress say they don't think masking does anything. Well, masking certainly does something. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, the idea about mandates, again, it depends on where you are and what the circumstances you're in. One thing for sure, that if you are in an indoor congregate setting, where you don't know the vaccination status of the people around you, you should wear a mask. We're going to be traveling soon. People will be traveling for the upcoming holidays. You're going to be in airports that are generally crowded. Keep that mask on. I know when people go to eat at the food courts, to the best of your ability, stay away from that and keep your mask on. You have to have a mask on when you're on the plane, but make sure you have it on when you're at the airport. So do you think cities should have mask mandates? You know, I'm not going uh, to speculate on that. Uh, I, I want to see what happens right now. Uh, right now, we should be focusing on what's going on in our own country. We have a Delta variant that is overwhelmingly dominant. We have 60 plus million people who are eligible to be vaccinated who are not yet gotten vaccinated. And we want to get a lot more people who are eligible to be boosted, boosted. Vaccination is going to be the solution to this, whether it's the Delta variant or whether it's the Omicron variant. 
vaccination is going to be the solution. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Could yet another House Republican face censure? The bigoted remark that's sparking new outrage next, plus a new wave of mass smash and grab incidents, massive groups of thieves hitting everything from luxury stores to Best Buy. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson of Texas, who's also a physician and served as former President Donald Trump's doctor and President Obama's doctor as well. He's now pushing a crazy new COVID conspiracy theory linked to Trump's big lie. Jackson posted on Twitter, quote, here comes the MEV, the midterm election variant. They need a reason to push unsolicited nationwide mail-in ballots. Democrats will do anything to cheat during an election, but we're not going to let them, unquote. Congressman Jackson completely discarding the physician's Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. But it is also worth noting South African medical experts first identified this new variant, not Democratic politicians. The World Health Organization named it and labeled it a variant of concern, not Democrats. And there is absolutely zero proof of widespread election fraud in vote by mail. Let's discuss. Ramesh, let me just start with you. So setting aside the political nature of this for a second, there's so much about this new variant we don't know. And we're waiting to hear. And I feel like Health officials, it's frustrating for them to say, we don't know, we need a couple more weeks, but they are trying to be transparent. It seems incredibly irresponsible for a doctor uh, of note, like Dr. Ronnie Jackson, uh, to pretend that this is a manufactured crisis. Well, it's it's irresponsible for a doctor, it's irresponsible for a political leader. He manages to be irresponsible (laughs) in both ways at the same time. You're right, there are a lot of uncertainties about this. We don't know how deadly it is. For example, maybe the most important question mark we've got here... One thing we can now say with pretty much certainty is that we will not get enlightenment from Congressman Ronnie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I don't know if he believes this or not. He- that's the thing. I, I do hope real journalists will report this out. Maybe he was joking. Maybe give him a benefit of the doubt. But he, he seems, I, I, I fear he's not. Right? I don't know if he believes it or if he's just trying to manipulate uh, uh, gullible supporters. I just don't know. But you know how physicists are always working on a unified field theory to pull together all the forces of the universe in one theory? He's coming close to a unified fraud theory of all the nonsense. The mail-in ballots are perfectly safe. I, I think the entire state of Utah votes by mail. Yes. There's no fraud. There. For years. Colorado does, other states. So he combines the big lie about election fraud with this really um, eccentric belief that somehow— you know, I guess Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and I, we were like hiding out and cooked all this up and then got South Africa. It's just, it's nuts. Well, no, nobody believes just one conspiracy theory. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to collect them all. Right. Well, what's so damaging about this, too, beyond the multiple falsehoods just in that one tweet, is that he does have the title of doctor. Right. Doctors, nurses, medical, medical professionals are broadly, widely regarded and they are trusted by the public. There's a reason why earlier this year or sometime last year, The Republican Doctors Caucus did kind of a PSA ad wearing doctors' coats, encouraging people to get vaccinated because the public trusts doctors. So when you have that additional title on top of elected official, on top of politician, it is especially egregious for him to be spreading these conspiracy theories. I think beyond, obviously, the the falsehoods in that tweet, what it it seems he's trying to do here are sort of uh, hone in on two things. One, um, you know, voter fraud, which, of course, we know uh, not to be true in, in, in 2020. But uh, what we're seeing from Republicans is they think this motivates the base. So we're seeing him sort of go after that. And then also um, there's clearly an exhaustion from the pandemic. Um, and we're seeing some Republicans through tweets kind of point that out with this new variant. 
um, and sort of dramatize what uh, President Biden is trying to do. We also saw the president sort of carefully, uh, when he was asked about lockdowns and masking mandates, he sort of carefully responded to that. So he's clearly trying to stroke the the Republican base here uh, through, you know, many falsehoods that clearly don't make sense. Speaking of which, um, not one Republican leader has denounced Ronnie Jackson. Not one Republican leader has publicly denounced the, the horrific Islamophobic comments made by Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado last week, which I think I think they also have a very strong vote by mail thing in Colorado, by the way. Right. <laughs> she suggested that her uh, Muslim American colleague, Democratic Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, maybe she was joking, but it's not funny, might be a suicide bomber. Uh, the two congresswomen uh, spoke today. Um, if you were hoping that this was going to bring a moment of reconciliation, here's what Lauren Boebert had to say about her conversation. I never want anything I say to offend someone's religion. So I told her that. She kept asking for a public apology. So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. Congresswoman Omar responded with a statement saying, in part, instead of apologizing for Islamophobic comments and fabricated lies, Representative Boebert refused to publicly acknowledge her hurtful and dangerous comments. She instead doubled down on her rhetoric. And I decided to end the unproductive call. I believe in engaging with those we disagree with respectfully, but not when that disagreement is rooted in outright bigotry and hate. So that resolved absolutely nothing and, in fact, uh, made it worse. And, in fact, I, I wonder, I don't know if you were, how much you were following this behind the scenes, but, or in front of the scenes, uh, Boebert put out, or maybe somebody on her staff put out, like a, almost a contrite tweet, and then Marjorie Taylor Greene, not to be outdone, basically shamed her for, for being conciliatory on this. I guess the Trump lesson is never apologize, even if you're 100% bigoted and wrong. It definitely seems to have gotten way worse than before the phone call. Um, and there's no one here, no, no one from leadership really stepping in uh, to tell either congresswoman really here what to do. Um, so it seems like this is just going to keep spiraling out of control. And we're going to see more uh, Republicans um, you know, perhaps take this type of tone because they're not really facing uh, consequences. We heard from uh, the Republican leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, say that even Republicans who've lost their uh, uh, committee memberships may get reinstated if Republicans win their majority in the House. So if there are no, really no consequences here, you know, public apologies or private apologies really might not matter. Right. I think Tarini touches on a really good point. You're saying they've faced no consequence because they get all the benefits of, you know, outrage and stoking their base. But Kevin McCarthy has done nothing to stand up and say these comments are wrong. And I think all of us around the table are old enough to remember when Kevin McCarthy punished Steve King for his comments, um, uh, being sympathetic to white supremacy, because that was only two years ago. It was in 2019. But right now, Kevin McCarthy is focused really only on, you know, one thing, winning back the majority and making sure he has enough votes to become speaker. And that means he has to kind of appease that crowd. It's the Donald Trump effect, but it's also the Ilhan Omar effect. Let's not forget, she has made a series of remarks that were accused of anti-Semitism. Democratic Congressman Elliot Engel said she had made, she had made a vile anti-Semitic smear. And she's essentially faced no consequences for that. She made a non-apology apology. Pelosi didn't make her, didn't insist on anything more than that. And I think that if you are the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Boberts of the world, you're saying, wait, why should we be the ones who back down when they never do? Well, she was called out by the senior most Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee, Ellen Engel, right? So, so she was called out by Lee. He, is, he was. Now. I do, yeah, I who's, think, who's still in power in Washington, D.C.? But no, but it's I not think, I do th- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Pelosi and others called her comments anti-Semitic. Right. There were leadership 
release statements. Yeah. But then Pelosi accepted her non-apology, saying she'd clarified her remarks. It's so, which, it's so, you know, I'm sorry if you took offense, it, it, right? But can we take a, talk about the news, not the history? Uh, the, the, the news here but the history is, is relevant. Is that well? But the history is the Democrats did call out Congresswoman Omar for that, and they should have, and they were right to do so. Crickets. From I, I, I have to say I, I, I laugh every time I hear the phrase Republican leader applied to to uh, Mr. McCarthy uh, because he's a moral and political invertebrate. He is not a leader. It's an oxymoron, right? Jumbo shrimp, adult male. Um, you know these <laughs> words just don't go well together. Republican leader tragically has become one of them. Why, why are the House Republican leaders so quiet on this? Is there just no upside? It seems to there seems to be no upside one because of the Republican base. You know, that's the Trump effect here. And then, of course, with, um, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy's ambitions to become Speaker of the House, if Republicans do win that majority, they're really trying to uh, figure out this balance between making sure the moderates in swing states have the cover that they need from these controversial comments, but also not alienating uh, the base and the Republican members who, you know, support and make these comments. Well, there's one more thing, which is that. If McCarthy denounces Boebert, Trump will denounce McCarthy. And McCarthy McCarthy understands that perfectly. Right, right. And and there is some uh, new reporting in Politico saying some Democrats, particularly allies of Congresswoman Omar, don't see Boebert's apology as authentic. But other Democrats privately worry if they punish a lawmaker who admits a mistake and tries to make amends, they'll be setting themselves up for similar similar treatment or worse under a future GOP majority. Um, This is reporting from before uh, she put out her video that seemed to not be rather apologetic at all. But there was a moment where it looked like Lauren Boebert was approaching contrition. Yes, and it was, I thought, well-phrased. Very often in Washington, they do this, if you were offended or something. Mm-hmm. She just said, I apologize to Muslim Americans who I've offended. Um, I, I think it was like, it's very often in Washington couched in much weaker language than I saw coming out of Congresswoman Boebert, and good for her. But now you're right, she seems to be crawfishing that. Uh, maybe under pressure from more, I don't know if there are more extremist uh, wings of her party, but apparently it never ends. Can I just say that I think contrition and acceptance would be a good thing in Washington? Like people say stupid things and, you know, if they apologize and they're sincere and they don't do it again, maybe there are lessons to be learned. Is that crazy for me to say? It would be good, but I think that's, you're, you're, you might be setting the standard a little bit too high. <laughs> Thanks for all being here. appreciate it. The former Secretary of Defense under Trump is taking the current Pentagon to court. Secretary Mark Esper will join us live. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, who was fired via tweet just days after former President Trump lost the 2020 election, is suing the current Defense Department. The lawsuit, which was first reported by The New York Times, is over the current Pentagon's demand that Esper take out, quote, significant parts of his memoir, about his time as Secretary of Defense. The book is titled A Sacred Oath. It is set to be released this spring. Joining us now is former Defense Secretary Mark Asper in his first interview since filing the lawsuit. So, Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. What does the Pentagon seem to be so worried about that they would edit out or block out, what is it, up to 60 pages? Well, first of all, good afternoon, Jake. It's, it's good to be with you. And let me just say, you know, the my view is that the American people deserve a full and unvarnished history of the last presidency, the, the Trump administration. And what I aim to do was to provide important insights and anecdotes and color to what was arguably one of the most tumultuous second halves of an administration in history. And so what I did was follow the law and uh, my personal commitment to protecting national security. 
and filed uh, my manuscript last May uh, for pre what's called pre-publication review. I got the document back nearly six months later, and uh, the report that I received in early October, DOD told me that uh, items, material, nearly 60 pages would need to be redacted. Now, it's important to say that DOD doesn't do all the redacting. In this sense, they actually had to farm it out, if you will, to at least a dozen plus other agencies and departments. So I really don't know who all is marking up the document, but I would say this much. I submitted what I believed at the time and still believe is an unclassified manuscript. And, uh, and the DODs and others continued redactions are, are simply arbitrary and unfair. And, um, and they should relent and allow this manuscript to be published as I wrote it. The lawsuit, your lawsuit cites, quote, um, significant text is being improperly withheld from publication in Secretary Esper's manuscript under the guise of classification. The withheld text is crucial to telling important stories discussed in the manuscript, unquote. Um, this is a, a topic we've talked about a lot on the show over the years, the overclassification uh, by the U.S. government under presidents, Democratic and, and Republican. Do you have any idea what they are redacting? How much of, is, is a, how much of it is about Donald Trump, President Trump's actions? How much of it is about China or Ukraine or Russia? Do you, have, do you know? Well, I know exactly what they're redacting because they, they give you feedback as to what it is. What I don't know is why. And I also don't, or the clear reasons why. And uh, the people I've talked to at DOD, at least, have, have been reluctant to even state that it is classified. What I often get is that uh, these are sensitive items that may affect international relations, that may, that are sensitive, that they've asked me to exclude quotes, uh, to exclude conversations with foreign leaders. Uh, you know, I, I was, I tried to work with DOD informally between the time that uh, I received my first uh, results back from the review and uh, over a month-long period, which ultimately resulted in me having to write a personal letter to Secretary of Defense Austin. But during that time, I tried to work informally, and what they were telling me there were highly classified items. I would go back online and within a couple minutes find the DOD actually reported the material themselves. So uh, I, I don't know what the reason is, but again, it's it's arbitrary, it's capricious, and it just does injustice to this important part of America's history that the people need to know about and uh, and need to understand in, in depth. And so that's why I'm committed to, to getting to the getting to the end of this and making sure that we publish the manuscript in full so that the American people know, you know, the full story of what happened, the good and the bad during those last couple of years of the Trump administration. Do you think this is the Biden administration not wanting to you to to report favorably on anything you think Trump did right? Do you think there is a uh, political considerations at play here? Oh, we don't want Esper to insult world leader two because we're still trying to deal with them. Uh, or do you think this is just a bureaucrats bureaucrating? Well, I think it's a combination of bureaucracy, maybe some laziness on the, the part of the reviewers. I think there's also, I know for a fact that there are folks in the policy world, at least at OSD policy, maybe other, maybe the state department who are concerned about international relations and the diplomacy of it all. But look, this is very simple. I have a lawsuit pending. I can't go into too much detail about that. But if this is not about politics, if the administration shares my view that we should have transparency in government as much as possible without compromising national security, which I remain convinced I have not done, nor will I ever do, then the White House, and I think it's it really lies with the White House now because this extends beyond DOD to multiple agencies and departments, the White House can simply come down and say, Look, if it's if it's classified, let Secretary Esper know, allow him to review it. I retain my clearances. And if not, 
then, uh, then remove the redactions and allow him to move forward and publish this book as written. Might you just do what John Bolton did, did and just publish it and let the chips fall where they may, knowing that ultimately uh, government suits like this, when they are as weak as you described this one, ultimately fail? Well, I could. But look, I, I want to do it the right way. I want to set the proper example. I, I followed the process diligently now for nearly six months. I've engaged with them both formally and informally. And the next step, regrettably, has been the lawsuit step. And uh, that said, again, I'd say the White House can come in, step in and say, allow it to move forward and uh, and go from there. But we'll see what happens. We'll take this one day at a time. Uh, again, I think it's important that American people understand their history, our history and what it means, because I wrote I wrote this memoir for a number of reasons. One is not just to tell a good story about what happened during those tumultuous times, but also for history, for for students of, of government, for policymakers today, uh, to give them some insights into what I was thinking, how I tried to work my way through, a, through, through you know, day-to-day activities. What were the core principles that guided me? And, you know, where did I succeed? Where did I come up short? I think these are all important things that, uh, that I think people will find very interesting when they read uh, my, my memoir, A, a Sacred Oath. Uh, just uh, as long as I have you, I know you weren't uh, Secretary of Defense uh, during uh, the insurrection on January 6th, um, but has the January 6th committee reached out to you to, to, to talk to you? I'm just wondering, as long as I have you here. Yes, they have reached out to me. We haven't been able to connect yet. And, and you're right, I wasn't there at the time. It was a terrible, tragic event, and uh, it, it, it obviously struck all of us pretty deeply, but um, we'll see where that goes. I, I did not focus on, on that. Uh, I tried to focus on my tenure as both Secretary of the Army, where I think we made very, very important strides in terms of modernizing the United States Army, and then, of course, uh, my tenure, my 18 months as Secretary of Defense, where, again, I covered the most controversial or important uh, elements of that time. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. We look forward to the book being published and you coming back and talking to us all about it. Sounds good, Jake. Thank you very much. Coming up next, law enforcement across the country on edge as large groups of thieves en masse target stores as the holiday shopping season heats up. In our national lead, the recent wave of mass smash-and-grab robberies at stores across the country appears to be getting worse just in the last few days. Police in Minnesota say at least 30 people robbed a Best Buy store there. Multiple incidents have been reported in California, including one where as many as 10 thieves made off with sledgehammers and crowbars from a Home Depot. CNN's Josh Campbell is live for us in Los Angeles. Josh, what are police departments doing to try and stop this, this flurry of organized mass burglaries? Well, surging additional resources is certainly topping that list. We know that various departments around the country have been increasing patrols at areas near these retail locations, again, to try to prevent these follow-on type of brazen robberies. Here in the city of Los Angeles, uh, the department has placed their officers on tactical alert, which means that there are additional officers available to respond should they see another one of these incidents. Up in Oakland, we just received a statement from them. They say that OPD will have additional staffing to address the increase in violent crime. Several tactical teams will support the patrol officers who are responding to armed caravans, illegal sideshows, and other violent crimes. The tactical teams are highly skilled in de-escalating incidents. Now, to just tell you about some of those incidents that we've seen, truly brazen, as you mentioned, on Friday there in Minnesota, two Best Buys robbed, over 30 people carting out merchandise. Here in the city of Los Angeles recently, a Nordstrom's was robbed uh, by several individuals carting off over $25,000 worth of merchandise. A security guard was hurt during that incident. 
incident. We've seen many more, but the one that really has law enforcement concern here is the one that you mentioned at the top. That is this Home Depot in the Los Angeles area that was robbed right in front of employees and shoppers, uh, up to 10 individuals carting away uh, hammers and uh, other items that could be used for additional robberies. That's why they are of uh, so much concern. Uh, one development on that case we're hearing over the weekend, the Beverly Hills Police Department stopped a vehicle, arrested four people that were believed uh, to be suspects involved in that Home Depot uh, incident. That, of course, very important because in order to try to stop the next one of these incidents, authorities want to interview these suspects to see if there's anything that they can glean about what may, might be coming next, Jake. Josh, this is certainly organized and it's certainly crime. I don't know if it is considered organized crime, but either way, is this something that the FBI can or should get involved in? Well, we know the FBI is certainly paying attention to what is happening. I heard from an official just a short time ago who says that the Bureau is in uh, communication with local law enforcement. They're uh, working to determine if there's any type of federal nexus, in which case they would take a more active role. Right now, these investigations are being handled by the various different local jurisdictions. But it's important for viewers to note that across the country, there are uh, on any given day these task forces involving the FBI, the U.S. Marshals Service, local law enforcement that regularly work together to try to stop crime. Of course, in this situation where you see these incidents, we don't know if uh, they're connected, but they certainly are using the same tactic. That is overwhelming force rushing into these retailers with a large number of people trying to overwhelm security, cart out merchandise, causing violence and smashing. Again, that's something that law, uh, law enforcement around the country is certainly taking note of. We can expect should this continue, we'll probably see a greater role by the federal government, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. The number of drug overdoses skyrocketing during the pandemic, and many of those deaths are being caused by one potent drug in particular. That story next. We're back now with the first installment of our new series, United States of Addiction. Today, a look at fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is driving rising overdose deaths, more than 150 a day, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Fentanyl is up to 100 times stronger than morphine. It's often mixed with other drugs to make them cheaper and more powerful and more addictive. And as CNN's Miguel Marquez reports for us now, the pandemic has made it even harder for those struggling with addiction. I just knew in my mother's heart, my son was dead. Matthew Davidson, 31 years old, died from an overdose on Memorial Day 2020. But I just remember crying out, I wasn't ready to let you go. And spent some time alone with him, patting his hair and touching his, his hands. He looked like he was just asleep. Davidson, first addicted to prescription painkillers, then heroin, struggled with addiction for 10 years. This isn't my first time I've been in a program. In and out of recovery, overdosing more than once. His death ultimately caused by the powerful synthetic opioid, Fentanyl. At one point when his girlfriend was asleep, I think that's when he decided he was going to take this dose of what he thought was heroin, but it was a very high level of fentanyl, fentanyl as well. Within the heroin, and it doesn't take any of it to hardly kill you. Fentanyl and synthetic opioids like it accounting for 64% of the record 100,000 plus deadly drug overdoses from April 2020 to April 2021. Did the pandemic kill Matthew? No. It just intensified. I think he was more emotionally fragile during that time. What did the pandemic do for addiction in places like Kentucky? 
Yeah, there was a, a clear and obvious increase in use, in overdose, in any metric that you want to use. Alex Ellswick, a former opioid addict, now dedicates his life to studying, understanding, and working with the addicted and recovering at Lexington's Voices of Hope. He says the pandemic and the isolation that came with it devastated the addiction community. What addiction is in your brain is downregulation of dopamine, and what social interaction does is upregulate dopamine. So it's literally organic medicine for the recovering brain. Add to the mix cheap and plentiful fentanyl, 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, whether in pill or powder form, injected or snorted, dangerous even in tiny amounts. How did fentanyl come into your life? My first overdose. Your first overdose? First overdose. How many overdoses have there been? Uh, 14. Shearer says he was clean for 19 months. Then last December, his grandfather died. Grief drove him to relapse. He thought he was using heroin. It was fentanyl. How much did you use? Very little. I wouldn't even say uh, less than a tenth of a gram. Less than a tenth of a gram? Less than a tenth. And I found out it was straight fentanyl. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a tiny... That's, ti- that's tinier than tiny. It's like barely a sprinkle of salt. I want to welcome everybody tonight. Social interaction important for the addicted, their families too. Jean Carey Butcher founded the Kentucky chapter of PAL, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. Over the years, they've heard it all as they struggled to free their son Matthew from opioids. Well, send him somewhere and fix him or fix her. Well, it doesn't work like that. Why don't they just stop? Why don't they just stop? Don't they know they can stop? You'd think they'd know what they're doing to their children. But you see, drugs take over the brain. Matthew's brother Glenn says there is no easy way to recover, and money alone won't solve the problem of addiction. Addiction isn't something you can just turn off, or it's not, you know, for a lot of these people, it's not a choice. Um, They're addicted to these drugs, and I think the only way they can get off is through support and um, love. This is his wallet, and, you know, this he didn't have much. Karen Butcher now clings to the few physical reminders of her son Matthew. Her favorite, a quilt made from all his favorite shirts. Sometimes I'll, I would think, you know, okay, I've got Matthew's arms wrapped around me. It includes the last photo they took together in his most favorite shirt. If the house caught on fire, I'd probably grab that quilt. I call it my Matthew quilt. Matthew Davidson, one victim of America's opioid epidemic, wrapped in the pandemic of COVID-19. Now, many, many thanks to the Davidson Butcher family for speaking to us. It is not easy. They do it because they hope it will help other people. If there's any bright spot here, Jake, it's that the CDC does have some predicted numbers for 2021 of uh, drug overdoses, and they are below where they were at the worst of the pandemic in 2020. They're still high but they are better where they, than they were a year ago. Um, hopefully, the worst is behind us. Jake? Miguel Marquez, thank you so much for that report. Tomorrow, our series, United States of Addiction, continues with a look at the surge of Matthews in America. Coming up, Queen Elizabeth will rule one less place. One fewer place. Is that what it is? Fewer? Less? Either way, either way starting at midnight tonight. In our world lead, a change nearly 400 years in the making. Later tonight, the tiny Caribbean island of Barbados will officially ditch its colonial ties to Britain and remove Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state as it becomes an independent republic for the first time ever. CNN's Max Foster has somehow managed to 
score this gig. He is live from the capital city of Bridgetown. And, and Max, Prince Charles is there. He's expected to speak tonight. Uh, he is, and it's actually going to be a big moment, I think, because uh, Prince Charles, I expect to say something about the atrocity of slavery and how that is a stain on Britain's past. And Britain has never gone as far to say things in those terms. Not as far as many would like here, frankly. They would like a full apology. They'd like reparations. But this is all inextricably linked to Barbados's colonial past. So they became independent from the UK 55 years ago. As you say, the Queen will no longer reign over this island as of midnight tonight. Prince Charles is here representing the Queen. He will watch as the royal standard is lowered for the last time and replaced by the, by the Barbadian flag. So it's a big moment for this island. It does depend on who you speak to. A lot of older people uh, do look back on this very dark past and they're angry about it and they want to get rid of the British monarchy and they want reparations for what was done here by the Brits back in the 1620s when they settled here, made huge amounts of money from the sugar trade and from the slave trade. But younger people, I think, uh, the ones I spoke to today, are feeling very positive about this moment. Uh, they want to move on. They want to look forward to a brighter future, and that's what tonight's about. Behind me, you can see the celebrations just starting. An epic steel band. Uh, they're going to be playing behind me soon, and then we're going to have that moment at midnight uh, when um, Barbados gets its first president, a Barbadian president, a Barbadian head of state, appointed by the Barbadian parliament. It seems like uh, just a symbolic moment, but it's a huge moment in Caribbean history. And other countries like Australia and Jamaica, who also have the Queen as head of state, looking very closely, and I think uh, those Republican movements are celebrating as well tonight. Jake. All right. Centuries late, but at least it's happening. Max Foster and Barbados, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of The Lead. You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.